Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, Merry Christmas, Candeo family. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you have ever spent a portion of your life in a country with a king? Like, ever since 1776, the concept of a king has been a bit foreign to us. Uh, But I remember when I was a college student, I actually spent a summer overseas living in Bangkok, Thailand. And one of the things that caught me when we landed on our plane there was walking into the airport, there's this big sign that said, welcome to the kingdom of Thailand. And everywhere we went, there were pictures of this guy. It'd be like every storefront, every restaurant, nearly every home had pictures of this guy. Even when you would go to something as simple as like a movie, the movie wouldn't begin without having this two to three minute long tribute to the king where everybody would stand for the tribute and then applaud when it was over. It's just a little different for you and me, right? Different for us. But even though the concept of a king is a bit foreign to us, like we get the basics, right? We understand that whoever the king is, they're a big deal. That if you have more than one king, that's a bad deal. And we also recognize that if somebody gets a chance to meet the king, that can be a life-changing deal, right? Well, today, what we see in this text is news of King Jesus's birth is going to break across the streets of Jerusalem. And what's shocking, I mean, literally mind-blowing, is that out of all the people that hear the news that we see here, world powers, religious leaders, and that, it's the most unlikely group of people that actually respond rightly to the news, and serve as role models for us in the Christmas season. Like this is how you're supposed to worship King Jesus. And so if you're not already there, uh, open your Bibles to Matthew 2. I wanna start in verse one. And I wanna start by making a few introductions. Um, First of all, when you open to verse one, you gotta know that at this point, uh, Jesus is possibly as old as two years old. Uh, If you look at like verse 11, you can see that they're no longer in the stable. They've actually moved into a house in Bethlehem. But right away, you get introduced to King Herod. And I want to just describe for you a little bit like like who King Herod is. All right. So King Herod, his name, another name for him was also Herod the Great. He wasn't a Jew by birth, but what he did is he claimed the throne to be king over the Jewish people, not because he was Jewish, not because he even deserved it. He used some military force and some, uh, I'll just put it this way, some shady political maneuvering. But when he was 30 years old, he was declared by the Roman Senate as the king of the Jews, right? Hold on to that title. And by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, he's been serving, he's about 70 years old, he's been serving as king of the Jews for 40 years. He was brutal. He ruthlessly defended and protected his throne. Over the course of his rule, he murdered his wife, his wife's mother, his wife's brother, a few of his sons, and a bunch of his relatives to protect and preserve his throne. One of the wildest stories about King Herod, and this was written by uh, Josephus, who was this kind of famous Jewish Roman historian of the time. He wrote that King Herod was so concerned at his like in his deathbed, that when he died, people wouldn't cry for him. That what he did is from his deathbed, he actually ordered that famous people from across his kingdom be brought together to a city. And when he died, they would also be murdered as well. So there would be weeping from one end of his kingdom to the other. Like in a nutshell, this guy was paranoid, 
deceitful and murderous. And we'll see all of that on display this morning. That's King Herod. I want to make another introduction here. I'm going to introduce you to the wise men. And I'm just going to apologize ahead of time. I'm about to ruin Christmas for you. Especially if your favorite Christmas song is We Three Kings. First of all, these dudes aren't kings. Additionally, we don't even know how many of them there were. Uh, We don't know their names. Uh, That's all speculation. We don't even know exactly where they came from. Like the phrase from the east literally means from the rising of the sun or orient. Like we don't know those things. But here's what we do know about the wise men. The the Greek word there for wise men is also magi. You've heard that word before, right? But that, that word also sounds familiar to something else in our language, doesn't it? It's where we get the word magic, magicians. We don't know a lot about these guys. Here's what we do know. These guys were pagan astrologers, sorcerers, wizards, masters in dream interpretation. And it was these special skills, these like special powers that they had that often made them counselors for kings. They were men of wealth and prestige and power, but they weren't kings. They were king makers. That was their job. But I want you to catch this, guys, because you got to understand, like, when you see the classic nativity scene, out of all of the people standing there worshiping Jesus, these guys are the most out of place. Not only because they're not Jewish, but because they're masters of witchcraft, which God states so many times throughout the Bible, he clearly hates. So I'll ask a very simple question. Why are they there? So your answer is like, well, the star. The star is why they're there. This is where it gets really interesting. It's possible that maybe they were able to tie together some Old Testament prophecies that I wouldn't say are abundantly clear about like a star coming out of Jacob and Numbers 24, Balaam's prophecy there. And they were able to connect that with Daniel's prophecies and Daniel 9 and go, okay, there's a star and then here's the timing and all that. It's, it's possible that they were able to do that. Most Bible scholars believe the most likely explanation for why they knew that this star meant a king is purely it was revealed to them by God, supernaturally. Maybe similar to what you see in verse 12 when it was revealed to them in a dream not to go back to Herod, something like that. Here's the gist of what I'm trying to say. These godless, far-off men are here seeking out Jesus because God invited them. Which means if you've got like one of those coffee mugs that says like wise men still seek Jesus, cross that out. You're giving credit to the wrong people. And you need to put underneath that, God still seeks sinners. Do you understand what I'm getting at? God initiated this moment. God took the first step. God's the one who invited in these godless far off men into relationship with him. This is our God. 700 years before Jesus was even put on this earth, this is what God said about his son. He said, it's not enough for you to be my servant, rising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 49, 6. You got to know this morning that no matter who you are or what you've done or what your story is, there was no one in the room that is beyond the immeasurable saving grace of God. No one. 
And you also have to know that it doesn't matter where you're from, what nation you call home, or what God you currently worship, there is not a person on the planet that God does not long to see have a relationship with him. When you look at the nativity scene, you should be reminded of God's heart for all people, all kinds of sinners from all the nations of the earth. That our God is a global God who seeks out the worst of sinners. That when you look at the nativity scene, you're reminded that if God can save people like that and people like me, then he can save anybody. That's why, church, we can't just be a Jesus-receiving people. But when Christ Jesus comes into our life and God begins to transform our hearts and he gives us now his heart, we become not just a Jesus-receiving people, we become a Jesus-sharing people, a Jesus-proclaiming people that now look at the world like he looks at the world to see all the peoples of the nation and all kinds of sinners and go, my God wants to know them. And he wants to use you to draw the nations to himself and all peoples to himself. And so I just create a moment of reflection here. Do you share God's heart for all peoples, his burden for all kinds of sinners? When's the last time you shared with somebody the work of Jesus in your life? Just told them, this is who I've experienced Jesus to be. Have you told anybody? Who are you persistently praying for that God would supernaturally break through into their life and draw them into relationship with him? There's a lot here in these first verses, but I want to highlight one more thing. I'll start with verse one, but it's really in verse two. It says in verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. It's interesting, the Greek construction of this sentence here communicates continual action, which means the picture that you should have in your mind of these wise men arriving in Jerusalem is not that they just rode in quietly on their camels, went up to like Herod's doorstep, you know, knocked politely, and after like exchanging pleasantries, Christmas cards and Christmas cookies and catching up about the weather, they then looked at each other and said, well, Herod, where is the little guy? That's not what was happening. Uh, continual action means that as they were walking into the city, they were stopping everybody that they encountered along the way going and repetitively asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Assuming that since they were the out-of-towners, they were the foreigners, that clearly everybody else would know. Can you imagine how shocked they were to go through the entire city asking each person, even going up to Herod himself, to find out that no one had any idea what they were talking about? So in verse three, when Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. If you're curious, why is everybody disturbed? Remember, you know what I said about Herod's reputation for paranoia and bloodshed, okay? So what does King Herod do? He assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he asks them where the Messiah would be born. In, Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem of Judea, they said, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means 
least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So I've already made a couple introductions, King Herod, the wise men. I'm going to make one more here. I'm going to talk about the chief priests and the scribes. If there is in like the religious hierarchy of things, like the average Jewish person, and then there's like the very religious Jewish person, and then there's like the leaders of the Jewish people, and then there's like the leaders of the leaders of the Jewish people, these guys are here. (laughs) When you see the phrase chief priests and scribes, think spiritual elite. And so Herod pulls them together and says, hey, where is the Messiah? This promised rescuer, redeemer, renewer, rebuilder, the eternal king to be born. This question for them was so easy. Even the average Jewish person knew the answer to this question. Where is the Messiah to be born? They could quote it by heart, and that's what they do here in Micah 5.2. And here again is where the story takes an odd turn. Because even though they knew the answer, as far as we know from what we're told here, none of them went to go see it for themselves. Isn't that weird? Like shepherds who were with their flocks in the middle of the night, dirty shepherds, like left their flocks and went running to the manger. You've got godless astrologers traveling miles upon miles to meet King Jesus. And these guys... I mean, the undefeated, undisputed, back-to-back-to-back-to-back Bible quiz champions of the world. They don't even make a five-mile journey to go check it out. As one commentary I read referred to this, just called this simply the strange indifference. I said at the beginning, that the news of King Jesus's arrival is gonna hit the streets of Jerusalem and be met with varying reactions. It's true then and it's still true today. News of King Jesus has always been met with varying reactions. In this text, we see three of them. And it's a reminder for us that there's many bad responses and bad reactions to the news of King Jesus. There's only one right way to respond. But in King Herod, what we see is the response of hostility. Herod viewed Jesus as a threat. He was not willing to allow the divine foot even into the door because he knew, at least he thought he knew what that meant. He viewed Jesus as a threat, not a savior. I want to just pause and reflect on Herod's example a little bit. And maybe if there's some that are just honest enough with themselves in the room, you'd go, actually, that's me. Like, I am a Herod. I too hate Jesus. I don't want him in my life. If you're honest enough to say that, can I just speak a few words to you this morning of encouragement? See, in one way, Herod was absolutely wrong about Jesus. Jesus wasn't interested at all in his earthly throne. And it's a reminder for us that if you're going to be hostile to Jesus and push him away, at least make sure you understand what he's about. Not what you think he's about or what somebody else told you he's about 
or about some like negative experience you had with somebody else who claimed to know what he was about, like make sure you understand who Jesus is. So in one sense, Herod was absolutely wrong about Jesus. In another sense, though, he was absolutely right. Jesus was a threat to his authority. Jesus is a threat to every one of our authorities. Because there can only be one king in your life. And Jesus' terms as king, whether you're in his kingdom or not in his kingdom, are very simple and very blunt. Absolute surrender. And nothing short of that. And this is not because Jesus hates you, though. It's because he wants what's best for you. See, so often, those who are hostile to Jesus, like you, you view Jesus as a threat because you think that you know better, that you love yourself more, that you're the better ruler of your life, and do not recognize that Jesus actually knows better, that he loves you more than you love yourself, and his rulership in your life is for your good. That he loves you more than you could ever love yourself. That he would ask you to count the cost and to trust him with your life. The call of Jesus on any Herods is simple. Lay down your weapons of war and trust me. So if we see in Herod the response of hostility, hostility, and we see in the chief priests and the scribes something way worse and way more sad and honestly way more common in the church walls, within the church walls today. Because here's what I mean. At least Herod was honest with himself and honest with everybody around him. At least Herod picked a side. But the great danger of indifference is that it doesn't pick a side. It, It looks like something, but it's actually nothing. The issue with the chief priests and the scribes and those who are indifferent toward Jesus is that you're lost, you're without Christ, but yet it's possible that the entire world around you is deceived thinking you do, and likely you also are deceived in thinking that you do. Here's what I mean. In the chief priests and the scribes, we see that the hardest people to save in this world are people who don't think they need saving. It's the people that can quote the entire Christmas story. They can sing all the Christmas songs. They can nod their head along with all the Christmas truths. They will fight to keep the Christ in Christmas. They will walk in and out of these doors all throughout the Christmas season and others around them will applaud them and celebrate them as Christians. Outwardly, they looked apart, but inwardly, they're far from God. If there's anything that Matthew 2 is emphatically pointing out this morning for us, It's the great danger of indifference when Christmas becomes nostalgic and not worshipful. So how do you know the difference? How do we know, like, is that me? Here's what I want to do now. I want to contrast the response of the chief priests and the scribes is a bad response with a right response of the wise men. Pick up with me in verse 7. 
says, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. That was a lie. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until they came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were, can you just underline this phrase in your Bible? They were overwhelmed with joy. Maybe you'll remember two weeks ago, I highlighted that that proclamation in Luke 2, verse 10, when the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, I proclaim to you good news of great joy. Maybe you remember a few weeks ago, I highlighted that that phrase, great joy, is unique in our Bible. Over 200 times, you'll see the word joy in your Bible, but only like about 10 times, you'll see the phrase great joy. It's unique. This is another one of those instances where you see great joy, overwhelmed with joy. They were overwhelmed with joy. This is not joy that's just simply on par with everything else. Like I have joy in Jesus, like I have joy in Christmas presents. Or like I have joy in Jesus, like I have joy in Christmas lights. Or I have joy in Jesus, like I have joy in my kids wearing matching Christmas jammies. This is a different joy. This is our mission as a church is not for people just to find joy, but to find greatest joy in Jesus. And notice what happens when they found greatest joy. Just notice what happens here. And verse 11 says, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the difference between the scribes and the chief priests and the wise men? It's simple. It's worship. But it's not just like, like lip service, right? It's not just about the words that come out of your mouth when everybody else is singing. Like, like worship goes beyond that because notice what happens here. It goes beyond lip service to like it affects their knees. And all of a sudden they hit the ground on their knees, surrendering to the king of the universe, Right? It, it moved from just lip service to now I'm surrendering all that I am to this king. He now is my master and my Lord. And not only does it go from the lips to the knees, it goes all the way down to their feet and to their hands to action, to a faith that has some movement. As they now start taking the things of this world that are of greatest value to them and laying them at the feet of a toddler. I, I'm just trying to like imagine this scene. And how wild this is, grown men at the feet of a toddler just throwing their gifts before him and worship. When was the last time you hit your knees before Jesus? And I'm not even just talking physically, like hit your knees and maybe prayed or something like that. I'm talking about like, when was the last time you, you hit your knees before Jesus? And, and what I mean is like, where you knew that you wanted to do X and Jesus wanted you to do Y and you chose Y. 
because your knees are bent before the master of your life and he determines what you do. When's the last time that happened? How often does that happen? When was the last time you took the things of this world that were of greatest value to you? Maybe it's your comfort or your time or your reputation among those around you in the workplace or your kids, and you took what was of greatest value to you and you laid them before King Jesus and said, you're my greatest joy, not these things. And notice here, and I do want to focus just a moment on just financial generosity because that's what's happening here. They took the thing of greatest value that they had on them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, like they they took all those things. And maybe there's some symbolism behind what all this stuff means, but they, they took what they had of greatest value and they laid it before Jesus. And notice that this financial generosity is not like an additional element to their worship. Like they worshiped and then they went and did this later. Like it was a part of it. I think one of the things that's been created in our culture, and I think sadly exists within Kenyo Church, is that we've disconnected financial generosity from worship. That for us, we worship and then we leave this place. We'll go home. We'll look at some spreadsheets. We'll look at our checkbooks. We'll go to our computer. We'll click some buttons. It's a non-worshipful thing. It's kind of calculated. It's kind of thought out. But it's not the overflow of worship. It's not supposed to be that way. That we should view like all of these things as just an extension of worship and what worship is. These men were so overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty of Christ Jesus before them that they took what they had of greatest value and they just laid it at his feet and said, it's all yours. The scribes, chief priests, Herod, they don't do stuff like that. They hold back for themselves. So in honesty, Which group of people or person looks more similar to your life? The wise men came into Jerusalem looking for he who had been born king of the Jews, and they found him. They knew that much. Here's what they didn't know when they left. That that same phrase would someday be written on a sign and nailed to a cross that would hang above his head as he would die. Not for his own sins, but for our sins. Kindle Church, this is our king. Matthew 10, 45 tells us, that for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is our King. And I would ask you this morning, is King Jesus worthy of your worship? Is this King, this King Jesus, is he worthy of you taking 
the things that you have of greatest value and you laying them at his feet. Is this king, is this King Jesus worthy of you stepping aside as king of your life and letting him rule instead? Is this King Jesus worthy of all of that? Because unlike Herod, who used military force and shady political maneuvering to gain access to the throne, a throne that didn't belong to him, for Jesus, every throne in all the world and every heart in all the world belongs to him. And what should happen this Christmas season is that every heart and every person would step aside and let him rule as king in the place that he rightly deserves and receive the worship that he rightly deserves. And I pray that be true of us. Can I pray, church? Join me. Yeah. Yeah, King Jesus... I've been grieved just in walking through this text at how often that word indifference defines me in a Christmas season where I'll just move through days without thinking much about you and your beauty, your majesty and, and, and worshiping you but my mind preoccupied by other things, Lord. And I, I ask that, that, Lord God, now in this moment as I step aside and let you be king, and you transform my life, that you overwhelm me with joy. And out of the overflow of that, not obligation, just genuine worship would flow out that would move from my mouth to my knees to the action of my hands, Lord, and that you would have it all as rightful king. King Jesus, you are beautiful, and there is no one like you. Amen. As just an extension of our time together, we've put some words together that will go onto the screen to just allow you to continue to reflect, to meditate on what you've heard, to maybe pray some more, or just to think of King Jesus. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.